It falls into a special subgenre of movie. That is the paraphrase remake. Now, there are often certain films that are paraphrase remakes. They're not a remake per se of another movie, but they wouldn't exist without this other particular movie's existence. And when you watch it and you know about that other movie, that's almost part of the enjoyment you have watching this new movie. Some of the real paraphrase movies are Dress to Kill and Psycho. Those are words from director Quentin Tarantino on Brian De Palma's 1980 film, Dress to Kill. Seeing Faces and Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. Today we're talking about Dress to Kill, so a quick synopsis of the film is, a mysterious blonde woman kills one of a psychiatrist's patients, and then goes after the high-class call girl who witnessed the murder. The film stars Michael Caine as Dr. Elliot, Angie Dickinson as Kate Miller, Nancy Allen as Liz Blake, Keith Gordon as Peter Miller, and Dennis Franz as Detective Marino. It's written by Brian De Palma, directed by Brian De Palma, cinematography by Ralph D. Bode, edited by Gerald B. Greenberg, and music by Pino Donaggio. Before we get into the conversation, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening to Seeing Faces in Movies, whether you're a new listener or a returning one. I appreciate you being here. As this is an indie podcast, sometimes we might run into some audio or tech issues. And in this episode, you'll notice my audio is a little different than usual. I didn't realize my mic had disconnected until it was time to edit. I chose not to re-record because I didn't want to lose the magic from our original conversation about the film. So close your eyes. Unless you're driving, then please don't do that. But close your eyes and imagine you're listening to a fuzzy, long-distance phone conversation between two great friends on an amazing film. And join us as we put on our best wigs and get dressed to kill. So today, my guest is a return repeat guest. And I would have no other person with me to open up Brian De Palma Month. And you'll recognize her name from a past episode we did on Claire Denise, Trouble Every Day. So today, I have Eugenia Gebelman with me. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> No, I mean, I am so excited to talk about today's film with you. <laughs> it's like, I, I've already liked this film, but on this specific rewatch, I was like, I love this movie and I love this man. And I can't wait to talk to you about this film. I won't force you to <laughs> reintroduce yourself. I think everyone should go back to listen to the Trouble Every Day episode. It's a great episode. You can learn more about her work. And I'll put it in the show notes again as well. But I know you watch a lot of films. Is there any that you've watched in recent weeks, months that you would recommend, like three of them to the audience and myself? Well, I first I agree with you. I don't need an introduction. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I've watched so much shit that I, it gets all muddled in my mind. So sometimes mm -hmm. I, I had to check my letterbox to find out what I watched recently. <laughs> but Night Moves. Uh, mm, okay. Yeah, with Gene Hackman, Arthur Penn, Dangerous Game with uh, Abel. It's another Abel Ferrara film. I'm trying to expand my Abel Ferrara uh, filmography knowledge. So I watched that with uh, Harvey Keitel. And then I rewatched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I only saw once in the theater and I hadn't seen it again. And I watched it a second time and I kind of liked it more than I did when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. So those three movies, I feel they're in a similar, maybe not dangerous game, but definitely Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Night Moves are like noirish mm -hmm. films. Uh, and Dangerous Game is more like an Abel Ferrara therapy session or whatever. It was. <laughs> <laughs> dangerous Game was interesting. It, it like plumbed some psychology about men and women and Madonna was like decent, It kind of good in it almost. I was like, wow, Madonna's not bad in this. And uh, mm -hmm. Harvey Keitel was amazing as usual. You know? Yeah. Night Moves I have seen. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I genuinely like that movie. Yeah. Like it's... It's one of those, I did see it in the cinema when it came out, and I then watched it afterwards 
during the pandemic. And yeah, it's long, but it it merits the time. You know, it's the storytelling in that movie. He could have retired on that one. I know he has one more, but he really could have retired. Not I'm saying retire, bitch, but retire, bitch. I just like he could have, and that would have been like a, an amazing end. That's a good sell to get Quentin on this podcast. Retire. Oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a great movie. It's probably my favorite DiCaprio performance, too. I just think he's so funny in it. Really genuinely, I, I agree with you. He he was doing some subtle things in that movie. And I felt it was one of his more like maybe closer to his own, you know, personality type things. Mm-hmm. And it felt more honest. Like, yeah was even spoofing himself kind of like yeah he very rarely plays like a just a regular dude yeah not that that guy's a regular guy he's an actor but like compared to his other characters character was like lovable but at the same time it was like he's such like a loser even though he is famous and every he's such like a pathetic (laughs) and that's relatable you know even like he maybe even movie stars and tv stars are just like us or whatever but uh (laughs) exactly (laughs) I love that movie because the vibes, the vibes are very Mm -hmm. uh, kind. I like movies that are just like a good atmosphere and like have fun. Like, and I like noirs and I like, I like that era of LA too. And it was cool that he had the whole Polanski, Sharon Tate thing there at the same time. So yeah, those are three great movies. Yeah. I mean, if you enjoy dark, a little bit of dark stuff, but you know, noir stuff, I didn't understand night moves at all. Like that movie, the plot of that movie, I didn't get it at all. Okay. I'm glad that you said that because a lot of people love that movie and I don't dislike it, but I don't love it. I probably need to watch it again, but I was like, I don't know what's happening. And at some point, my favorite part of that movie is when Hackman is just in bed eating fondue. <laughs> I'm like, sir, that's not a bed meal. <laughs> you totally, you totally almost you made the movie for me because the entire movie I was like, wait, this is the movie yeah. where told sent me that thing where he's post-sex fondue and i was just waiting the whole movie for posts for when it was gonna happen (laughs) yeah it's great (laughs) only hackman could do that like that movie the it's almost like the plot is irrelevant like i was waiting Mm -hmm. for something to coalesce like with at least with once upon a time in hollywood like it all starts to make sense with night moves it makes even less sense you get at the end (laughs) what was even what was happening at all but I just like Gene Hackman so much in that movie. I like his outfits. I like yeah. how they shoot him. Like, I like the cinematography. The vibes, again, like, the co- it coasts on vibes in a very fun way. So, I don't know. It's just kind of like... Also, I used it as sort of inspiration for whatever I'm... As, like, aesthetic 70s inspiration for whatever the hell I'm trying to write. So, I don't know. Oh, but, nice. That's yeah, my yeah. favorite era of America. A cool so. guy. A cool guy in a cool, like, jacket driving a cool car. What else do you fucking want in a movie, you know? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. That's all I want. Well... I'm ready to get into Dress to Kill, if you are. Yeah. The tagline for Dress to Kill is, every nightmare has a beginning. This one never ends. That's funny. It makes it sound like it's extreme slasher movie. It does. I mean, technically, there are slasher elements, but it's more of like a cerebral thriller. As far as movies from that era go, it's like slick. Like, it's very aesthetically pleasing, kind of. It's not really like a grimy slasher film. It's very no, no polished and classy it's kind of a classy diploma (laughs) right and i'm glad that you said that because some people kind of describe him as sleazy and i'm like i don't think he's sleazy he he makes stuff that i think is in the back of everyone's fantasies and it's just putting it out there but it's so beautiful to watch like his films are beautiful they're not sleazy they're not gross oh it's crafted very well like it's not yeah sleazy maybe the material the content is sleazy, but mm-hmm. I'm sure you can see my air quotes. Air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear my air quotes, but maybe the content is slightly sleazy, but it's not done in a, Mm-mm. it's very slick and beautiful. And the cinematography is amazing. And, you know, the production design is amazing. The music mm-hmm. is good. Like it's all on all levels. It's very high quality. 
stuff he's doing. He's not slacking off. He's not making a B film. This is like an A grade top notch film. Like maybe B movie content, like genre content, mm-hmm. but extremely at a high artistic level. <laughs> that's that's what I aspire to do, to be honest. I know. <laughs> He's like my inspiration for if I ever make a film. I think Dress to Kill is maybe, for me, one of the most perfect erotic thrillers Mm -hmm. right next to Basic Instinct. Like it's Basic Instinct and Dress to Kill. Those are the two like top of the top of the game. Yeah. And not to get too much into it, because I definitely will be doing a month on him. But for Hoven, it's another one who just knows how to do this thing properly. Yep. Yep. And Adrian Lin with Fatal Attraction. Yes. He also did Nine and a Half Weeks, too, yes. right? And yeah. I, incredible. I want to rewatch Nine and a Half Weeks. Wow, that's a movie. That was a fun time. People used to have fun, you know, for a while. They really did. That's in the 80s. Everyone's on Coke. Exactly. <laughs> they used up all the fun. They really did. They left us all with just depression. <laughs> So a couple quick fun facts, I guess, about the film. So Angie Dickinson, who plays Kate Miller, so the scene where her character gets seduced in the back of a taxi was filmed on location in New York, where several gawkers like observed the scene and shouted, right on, policewoman. I guess she had been in a TV show where she played this policewoman. Oh, okay. She had to do the scene in front of just random people just watching her that was all that was all in front of the metropolitan like for real so the outside scenes are the metropolitan but i think the inside i read was a museum in philadelphia because i guess they couldn't film inside the Uh, metropolitan because that's what i was always um noticing whenever i watch it because i can clearly see the outside is definitely outside the med but inside is like what museum is this (laughs) doesn't look like the Met. She's extremely, I love her in this film. She's, oh yeah. I like that she's a little bit older than you generally see women in this kind of film. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. She's like more mature and she genuinely, you believe her as this housewife and mom and just, she wants some on the side, you know, like what's the problem? I mean, <laughs> she's barely getting it at home. So can you blame her? No, I don't blame her. I don't blame her. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn Palma, why'd, why'd she have to die? <laughs> I know. Well, we'll get into that for sure. But speaking of Angie Dickinson, she was 50 at the time. So that's not something you would see. They did use a body double for the shower scene. So it's her face, but her body, the actress whose body didn't want to get credited for it because she was just like, let Angie get the credit for that. Because I remember the first couple of times I was like, damn, okay. She yeah, does better than yeah. I do. Yeah, she, okay, well, yeah, if she's 50, the breasts are extremely perky, so yeah. I was like, yeah, that's a perk that... They're standing, they're yeah. upright. <laughs> Another fact, so as a young man, at his mother's urging, De Palma followed his father and used recording equipment to try and catch him with another woman, and this incident inspired this movie. I thought that was so interesting. Kid, that kid is actually a stand-in for De Palma. For De Palma. Yeah, I could see that too. I felt like he was like, this is me. And I heard, and I remember watching an interview with him, with De Palma, where Bombac is talking to him. Mm-hmm. And I think De Palma says, um, I used to build computers. And in this one, the kid's building a computer. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that he has like a self side character who saves the day. <laughs> Right? I love that. Keith Gordon, who played the son, Peter Miller, he actually wanted to learn how to create films or make films and how that was done. So he asked De Palma if he could shadow him. And De Palma agreed. So he was on set every day just watching him. Like, imagine learning how to create a film from De Palma himself, especially at that era of his work. Wow. I want to be that. I want to be Keith Gordon. (laughs) Right? I like when directors like down to earth and they actually like, they love filmmaking so much that they do want to share it with other people who love it. I don't like when they're like elitist about it. Like, Oh, you know, I'm such a genius. You could never even stand near me. Like, I don't like that. Like you were in this position at some point in your life. Exactly. Everyone stars, you know, 
So in the late 70s, De Palma wrote a screenplay based on Gerald Walker's article, Cruising, but he was unable to obtain the rights to the material. And Cruising eventually went to Freakin, who directed it. De Palma used some of the elements from this Cruising screenplay he wrote for this film. Oh, nice. They both came out the same year, healthy <laughs> enough, 1980. What? Cruising? Cruising? Oh, my God. I, I love, love Cruising. Yeah. I love that movie. That's it's a, a fun movie. It's a lot. I like movies where you're like, wow, this is a lot. Favorite fun fact about cruising is that as research for cruising, like uh, Friedkin and his crew, main crew, would just go trolling the meatpacking district. Yeah. To, to all the gay clubs, all the leather clubs. Are you sure how much of that was research and how much of it was just wanting to troll a gay club? Exactly that. Because I think when uh, when they had to shoot inside the club, he had to wear yeah, the costume, dress up. Yeah. yeah. So he was like in a, a jock strap yeah, or whatever yeah. it was. And he's like, no one was talking to me. I wish I could see that behind the scenes footage of cruising. Oh, my God. Right. I'm like, where are the images? I want to see this picture of him. And there's supposedly a missing 20 minutes of cruising. That's just straight up gay pornography. Like they're actually having sex. It's just now I'm wondering what the 20 minutes porn 20 minutes of cruising because <laughs> the movie itself is pretty explicit anyway mm. someone what the hell we're missing <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of this film was supposed to get an x rating but De Palma fought it just to get it down to an r rating but if you're ready to get into the film i'm ready yeah the film opens up with a shower scene. So we've already kind of a little bit touched upon that. De Palma loves a shower scene. He loves women soaping up their boob. And I love that for him. People give him shit for the, the shower scenes, but I'm just like, listen, we all soap up our boobs over in the shower. What's the problem with showing an accurate shower <laughs> scene? It's great, especially the way he shoots this one. The body double one is a different style of shooting, but the one in this one is great, the way he shoots that scene. So how do you feel about that being the opener to this film? Uh, who doesn't enjoy a good soaping up your tits? <laughs> I mean, I think we don't have enough of those. We don't. <laughs> At least not like done in a very, with gorgeous cinematography, good lighting and all the rest. It's so unique, like uh, to him, even his other movies that open on women soaping up their tits, which is what Body Double opens up on that. Mm -hmm. It's even unique itself i like the mix of like it's so over the top too like the expressions angie dickinson is making are so funny yeah and i just like how ridiculous it is but also how genuinely erotic it is at the same time and it also mixes this sex impulse with like the fear of the repercussions of the sex mm -hmm other side of it like because that scene ends with her being like fantasy raped by this guy yes in this fantasy or in this dream suddenly a guy comes from behind her and is like initially raping or murder whatever he's doing to her i'm not sure exactly yeah sort of what seemed like the two dualities of of humanity which is like sex and death <laughs> basically there's no dialogue and that's something we see throughout this film in scenes that are probably the most important scenes of just we're watching it he's placing us as the voyeur we're just watching this happen we have no say in what's happening and because there's no dialogue you never know what's going to happen next and you're shocked at what happens in that scene it sets the tone like the first part of it with angie dickinson it's almost a silent film mm -hmm. she doesn't talk a lot of it no just music and her just imagery of her walking around new york having her day in the life of a woman who gets murdered in an elevator <laughs> later yeah well she only I, I didn't realize until i was reading about it she only has two scenes of dialogue one is with the son when she's talking to him about you know, his device that he's building. And the second is with Michael Caine, Dr. Elliot. And then after that, she doesn't say anything. It's just her reacting to things and things happening to her. It's almost like to me when she's taught those two scenes where she's talking, it's almost like, oh, wow, wait, she talks. Mm -hmm. I thought we're silently mm -hmm. following. I love how it's propelled so this movie is very just visual. Yes. Visual and and the score. Mm -hmm. Or is great too. What he says is that he he's not a dialogue person. He's like, I am not going to pretend to be a great dialogue. 
writer, what I like to do is show you what's happening as opposed to telling you. He likes the way to shoot a scene. And when dialogue comes in, it's because it needs to be there as opposed to just having people talk throughout. There could have been a dialogue. She could have been talking to people, but it would not have had the same effect as her not saying a single word for, and it's a nine minute long sequence. Yeah, this movie has sequences without a lot of diet, long sequences that are like iconic. So the museum one, the opening, the subway one. There's so many like iconic, like imagery sequences that I think stayed in my mind because the first time I saw this movie, I was like, I don't know, a teenager. And then I didn't see it again for a long time. But always in the back of my head was like, it even inspired me to write my own stuff. I was like, that Uh museum thing so amazing. Like, it's so I love how sexy the whole is sexy. The concept of like picking up a woman in a museum is right. (laughs) Yeah, because you wouldn't think of it like that. Before we get into that museum sequence, I do feel like there's a bit of a, I don't know, if you want to say elephant in the room in terms of this film, because it always gets compared to Psycho, the Hitchcock film. I'm going to read just a quick quote from The New York. They say he borrows a narrative energy from classic Hollywood movies, a feel for the balance of the script and for the spring-loaded dovetailing of scenes that gives his films a relentless forward motion. He's a huge old Hollywood fan. He's obviously a a big Hitchcock fan, and he's never pretended not to be. This film has a woman that we're following. You just assume this is going to be your protagonist for the whole film. She's killed. I don't know how far into the film it is. It's probably 30, 40 minutes, maybe 30 minutes into the film. It's like the basically the inciting incident is her being killed. Yeah. And then she's gone. There's no flashbacks to her. She's, we're done with her. And then you get that parallel in Psycho as well, where Marion Crane, she's killed. Yeah. And you're like, okay, she's gone. We're no longer following. But he did say, for this film specifically, he said, my style is very different from Hitchcock's. I'm dealing with surrealistic, erotic imagery. Hitchcock never got into that too much. Psycho is basically about a heist. A girl steals money for her boyfriend so they can get married. Just to Kill is about a woman's secret erotic life. And if anything, Just to Kill has more of a Benoit feeling to it. So have you seen Belle du Jour, Benoit film? Yeah. So I've seen people compare it to that and just kind of like fantasy that she has and yeah. the eroticness yeah. to that. But he very much makes this film his own. So how do you feel about the temptation for people to say that this is just straight up psycho borrowing from Hitchcock as opposed to him one as a sign up before I'm like psycho was a book before Hitchcock even touched it so as much as I love psycho I love what Hitchcock did with it but it was a book how do you feel about the comparison to Hitchcock all the time well I guess people assume that Hitchcock never stole anything from anyone I Mm -hmm. I tend to believe that the best artists steal from everybody and then they just make it their own yeah I mean, I I prefer De Palma to be honest. Mm-hmm. I because Hitchcock, I like Hitchcock too, but his exploration of the sexuality was more on a psychological level, and with De Palma, it's more on a visceral, physical level as well. Like there's the psychological element, but he also just puts it up out there, yeah, right up front, which is more fun for me. I agree with what you said. As an artist, whatever medium, we don't live in vacuum. You're going to get inspiration from someone at some point, whether you want to admit it or not. He does admit, you know, these people do inspire me, but he's creating his own thing. There's a reason why you'll watch a film today and you're like, oh, this person is doing like a De Palma. Yeah, now people are doing De Palma, but worse. Yeah, that is good. <laughs> exactly. So the only crime is trying to do something and being inspired by something and doing it worse yeah if you do your own version and kind of improve upon it or like at least not worse then it's fine if you make it worse then that's bad but he didn't make it worse like he took hitchcock and he ran with it Mm -hmm. and he did his own thing and it's not it's building upon hitchcock it's not like the way the camera operates in this film because the camera is its own is like the replacement for you in this film because it's leading you. It's following people a lot in this film. The camera angles are great. And then you get your De Palma die after shots and lenses that he uses. He said something about the way he likes to alienate the audience. He says, I'm constantly standing outside making people aware that they're watching a film. At the same time, you're emotionally involved in it. 
And I love that he said that because you're watching this and you're like, this is a movie. He's never trying to pretend like, oh, this is real life. He doesn't take the material seriously. He takes the way he's making the film seriously, but the material is not serious. Well, the artifice of it is part of the, the fabric of the film. Like they're always rewatching. I, I love how many different points of view there are. There's a constant shifting point of view in the film. Mm-hmm. In like the cab scene where she's getting fingered in the cab, there's a shot there's a camera shot where it's like from her point of view of her laying down Mm -hmm. in the cab love that like okay we're suddenly in her point of view okay i feel like that whole sequence with the museum and in the cab is we're in angie dickinson's point of view Mm -hmm. and then we shift to the escorts point i forgot her name but the Oh, yeah, Liz? Uh, Yeah, the character who we focus on in the second half of the film. We shift to her perspective. She sees Michael Caine in the glass of the elevator. So we're in her point of view now. And then we go into the son's point of view. Like, there's a lot of shifting POV that's really, like, fun and interesting. And there's so many weird... There's the split diopter shots. There's so many, like... And the split diopter shots, I feel like, is almost audience point of view. Mm -hmm. Like, they're showing us, like, with the glove... Where she where she throws away the glove and then there's the split diopter with the hand taking the glove away. Yes. That's revealing information she doesn't know to us. And that's cool. Like it's a constant, the camera's everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's fun. Speaking of that scene where the hand takes away the glove. So right after that happens, she notices the guy in the cab waving the glove to yeah. bring her over yeah. and she goes over. And I will not pretend to say that I noticed this. It wasn't until I was watching the interview with him and Bombback, but Bombback mentions yeah. that the camera pans across Bobby. And when I saw that clip in that interview, I got like shivers. I was like, what? I've seen this more than once and I never noticed it. I've never noticed that you see, yeah, Michael Caine in the wig. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, that's terrifying. That is very creepy. That's a really cool, creepy way to do something. Yeah. Like, I love it. I love the little detail. There's so many details. Mm-hmm that are so thought through, you know, and De Palma said that he storyboards everything. Mm -hmm. So like, this is all very meticulous, like, and I love, and I love that. I I like (laughs) that he treats the audience with enough respect to be like, I don't have to spell everything out for you. He makes films that are so insanely rewatchable and he's doing it specifically. Like there's no way you could catch everything on your first watch, even on your second watch. That's, is what makes a great film to be able to watch it over and over again because there is a twist to this but it doesn't matter if you know the twist because you will catch something in each time even this watch it's the scene where liz is in the in the car i think being followed by bobby and then it cuts to dr elliot michael kane on the phone being like did bobby get my messages tell her call her back when you're watching the first time you just assume this is taking place at the same time you realize oh he's playing with time this is not this is happening at a later time it's happening even before but he treats the audience with enough respect to be like you guys are smart enough to know you'll recall what i did well i think that's what the makings of a really good thriller is is like there's so many clever elements in it that you only notice if you rewatch it a few times like it keeps unveiling itself i've seen it maybe four times or three or four times Mm -hmm. each time i notice something else i'm like wait i didn't see that before not even a thriller any good movie like upon rewatch when you see another shade of something or you see another detail uh-huh. the fact that he is playing with time and he's not playing with time in like an annoying yeah. obvious way and it's not like onerous he's not like making you concentrate on the fact like oh my god isn't it so cool how i'm playing with time <laughs> it's just like a small detail that you don't even notice yeah exactly and then you notice it later he's using the split diopter to like play with time that's really cool i just love the way he shoots his films and it's just so amazing to watch what he's doing and being able to also provide us with a story that's captivating and the pacing is just so good in this movie like it could be longer it's like a tight i think it's an hour and 40 and it just goes by so quickly because you're just so engrossed and everything that's happening so entertaining Mm -hmm. sucks you right in and you don't you don't get sucked back out until it's over yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's maybe a few scenes that like maybe I wasn't as invested in like I don't care so much about the kid even though the kid Mm -hmm. is an important place 
I didn't need that. Like, I get it. He's part of the whole thing. Yeah. You know, if he didn't have the kid, it wouldn't matter to me. But <laughs> it has the kid because it's part of the plot. So that's fine. Yeah. He adds on to like the voyeur element. It, it's pretty much about the three blondes, essentially. Four. I guess Michael yeah. Caine's also blonde. Yeah. You know, when he's playing the doctor. Where I wanted to move it to was kind of the camera, which we've already talked about but as acting as kind of like an unreliable narrator. So we kind of talked about that with the the camera jumps. What he's doing is creating a narrative with the camera and using it as a way to sometimes mislead you onto things, being like, oh, this is where it's going. We've already talked about this, but there's no way you would think that Andy Dickinson is going to die. Even in the elevator, like, maybe she's going to survive. No, she's dead. Okay. If you want to go back a bit before she even gets into the elevator, after she wakes up at the guy's place, there's two instances that are kind of misleading. She sees the the doctor note that this guy has multiple STDs. She's shook out of her mind. She's like, what? That was funny. I always laugh at that part. <laughs> yeah, I would have been like, um, wow. So I'm being punished immediately. <laughs> As she's leaving, she also remembers she doesn't have her wedding ring. So now she has to try yeah. and figure out Oh, I'm in the elevator. I need to go back up to this guy's place. And you're thinking, okay, she's going to go back to get the ring. She's going to have to confront this guy and being like, sir, one, you didn't tell me. Two, this is reckless behavior. And three, you just have these papers out in the open <laughs> for all to see. Here's my paperwork of my syphilis. <laughs> He's like, well, I guess I wasn't hiding it, you know. But that doesn't happen, obviously. She doesn't make it outside of the elevator. There's a lot of instances of the camera just misleading you in a different way. One thing about the elevator, um, narratively, how he's really punishing her character in like mean ways. Like mm-hmm. if she didn't go back up for the wedding, the stupid wedding ring, she wouldn't have gotten murdered. Yeah. <laughs> I like that tension of like, God damn it, woman, you know, <laughs> if only you just like been like okay i guess my wedding ring's gone yeah and the girl staring at her in the elevator too there's like a lot of things happening in a very short space of like just her going back up to get her her wedding ring a lot of tension it is tense when bobby gets into the elevator it's because of the way she's dressed and the sunglasses and just the the awful wig that you're like i don't trust this woman already off the bat but she could have just been some regular weirdo kind of woman in the elevator but immediately not only is this person in here but the elevator stalling so that you're like okay something's about to happen and it's pretty gruesome to be killed with a razor straight razor i think i remember i'm trying to remember the first time i saw it i really was shocked that she was killed like right off the bat i was like wait a second isn't she the main character (laughs) why are we killing her and yeah i i the first time i watched it i wasn't aware that it was michael kane i was like i had no idea but that's another scene where it's silent. There's no words being, you know, because there's no need. What is she going to do? And you have the slow motion of what's her name? The prostitute? Liz. Of Liz, like seeing the the hand with knife come down and the blood and her hand reaching out and it's slow motion and it's and the music and it's so just perfectly and then it's the creepy, the really creepy shot at the end of that scene where it's her hand coming out of the yeah, elevator. You're just pushing on the hand. That's a creepy image. So yeah, it's just shit. <laughs> That's what you call a well done slashing thriller. <laughs> I, exactly. It's pretty much it's like an art house film. It is art. It's just so you know not insufferable at least for me it's not insufferable exactly well yeah you don't want insu- that's the thing like art house you you run the risk of becoming insufferable but brian de palma was always entertaining so. i know there's people where de palma is not for them and that's fair enough i don't agree but that's fair enough <laughs> everyone has the right to be wrong <laughs> i'm like you can't deny that the man is entertaining no you can't speaking of the well, speaking of the silence and that scene, we have another long, probably the longest of the silent scenes, which is the museum scene. From the minute she gets there until she leaves, it's silence. And we get her just looking at pictures. We get her people watching. Then we get the man who sits next to her. I love her performance in this because she kind of looks over at him in a flirty way and he doesn't respond. And she's like, oh, you know, she's kind of shocked and she takes off her hand. 
or, or gloves, sorry, from her hand to show the wedding ring. So I've, I've read different things about this. I'm wondering what your opinion is. So some people are saying she takes it off to show that she's married. So she's not available. Some people say that she takes it off, shows that she's married, but that she's up for a non-committal rendezvous, essentially, because she's married. So she's not going to want a relationship. How do you read the, why she took off the glove? I think it's showing her ambivalence. Like it's the leaving it up to him. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to resist by showing you that I'm married, but only in a very kind of passive way. Like, yeah, here's my wedding ring, but yeah. I'm not, you know, explicitly saying anything. Here it is. <laughs> why did she even take it off? Yeah, that was weird. That was weird. Why would she take off her wedding ring? No, I know it's just, you know, as a thing for the plot, but there's no actual reason. De Palma really, like, her character is really, like, punished. She's the very Anna Karenina character. She suffers incredibly for for just wanting to have some sex on the side as a woman in a marriage. (laughs) Yeah. They don't let her off easy. No. That's how that type of movie works. You know, you have the... The femme, it's funny that the femme fatale is like Michael Caine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, as a side note, his agent said to him after he watched this film, he's like, yeah, don't ever play a role like that again because you look awful as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't look great. I've seen better. But it did work. It worked in the context of film. I don't think it was supposed to be make for a very attractive woman. <laughs> No, no, he's not Killian Murphy, you know, and Breakfast on Pluto. Oh, yeah, no, no, not for sure not. But speaking of silence in the museum scene, something that you said before, the shifting of the point of views, we shift from following her mm-hmm. as she's searching around for this guy mm-hmm. because she's on a chase now mm-hmm. and it switches from her point of view and us now kind of following. That builds another layer of tension. There was already tension and there's more tension being added. So how do you feel about this, the shifting of point of views in that scene and kind of just racing through the museum as we figure out why this guy is playing with her and why she's playing along? It's a fascinating scene for that reason, the shift in perspective, like we're, we're following one person and one person's following one person and the other person's following them. The two people like shifting from I'm following you to no, I'm following you now. It makes it a fun scene um, and it makes it a memorable one too. And it's sort of a very unique, like if it didn't shift perspective like that, I don't even think it would be that memorable, but because it does, it's so interesting. I like the little pauses too, where she's just staring at other random people. I like, it's so like realistic, like you're in a museum and you're looking at whatever other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And you're so in her head for that reason. And then you like, and looking at the paintings and the paintings start to look weird almost. Mm-hmm. Like we're looking at this gorilla painting and it's like the gorilla painting starts to have its own fascination. Like, why are we staring at this gorilla painting? And then I like the little notes, the little household yeah. floor. She must, you know, pick up. <laughs> That's like you're making your grocery list yeah, yeah. at the museum. It's a funny little like uh, interspersed with all of that. It's just her doing her little, uh, you know, household chores notes in her notebook as a housewife. <laughs> you would never assume something bad's going to happen to this woman at that point. This is just a day in her life. And then when the guy sits next to her, as any woman, you're immediately like, there were several other benches. Why are you sitting right next to me? Yeah. And that's when you're like, okay. It clicks. I assume it would click for uh, men or other people as well. But for someone who identifies as a woman, immediately I was like, this is not good. And then it turns out that he was no actual threat to her apart from giving her STDs. I always thought the man who in that scene would have some significance, but it was just some random. <laughs> yeah. Shows up again, just some dude in glasses. You never really see him. Yeah, and then we we move on from there to the the cab scene. And again, no audio. It switches from... But I like that scene that you mentioned of her lying down and the camera lying down with her. I love that little moment of that scene. And it flashes to, you know, her looking up at the driver and being like, uh, weird. And the driver can't tell if he's annoyed or turned on by what's happening. I feel like it's a mix of both. He's kind of staring through his rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like creepily, you know, like she knows she's being watched and, and she's 
it's just another layer of the voyeurism and there's still no dialogue up until Liz is outside the elevator and she's talking to, I guess, one of the guys she, you know, working with. Yeah. So you have that. It's and they say it's nine minutes of and that could drag. You're so absorbed by what's happening that you can't look away and it doesn't feel like it's nine minutes long. And you don't even really notice that they haven't spoken because he's able to show you what's happening. It feels completely um, engrossing and normal. It's like, yeah, this is fine. This is no one's talking. We're just the music helps and stuff to really move it along and to keep you engaged. It's well, very well edited. Like it, it yeah. very smoothly transitions from one thing into the next, and you don't. Yeah, and it, it's almost weird when people start talking. It's like, oh wow, people talk in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, as well, he could have made a silent film, I feel like. Although I have to say, one of my favorite characters in this film is the detective. <laughs> yeah. He's really, <laughs> fun. He's really yeah. funny. Sometimes the dialogue is corny, but sometimes it's so realistically like New York-y dialogue. And it was really funny. Like, yeah, this guy definitely is a type of policeman in New York. <laughs> that just so happens in the end that he knew what was happening all along. But he plays like he's a, an idiot the whole time. He's hilarious. I love it. He's a great character. Another scene that I love, and I really loved it on this watch, was the subway scene. Oh, yeah. Now we're flashing forward to Liz, now our protagonist. She has an instance with some people in the subway because she sees that Bobby is following her in the car and they have that little car chase scene and then she gets to the subway because she's trying to lose Bobby off her trail. She has an instance with the people on the subway and you think they're going to be the threat now. She's lost Bobby. Then there's that scene where she jumps onto the subway, bumps into the cop and the, she's telling the cop, there's someone following me and I have these other people on me and they look over to see where the guys are. And while they're looking it left the camera flashes and we see Bobby jump on the subway another subway car it's so quick it's also scary and then it goes back to a silent scene mm -hmm. the flashes the, the light is cutting in and out on the subway because that's what happens when you're underground mm -hmm. the flash from her looking at the cop and it's looking back at Bobby and it flashes to like the other subway car and we see Bobby in there yeah, yeah. like the flash he's in there the whole time yeah, <laughs> yeah the camera's just panning back and forth and I had already seen this movie, but I was still basically clutching on yeah. to this is so terrifying. And that's my favorite type of horror film where you're like, what I'm seeing is not even necessarily gory or aggressive, but it's that's disturbing. It's the waiting of being like, what's going to happen? How do you feel about that scene and the way he utilizes the science in that, in the panning of the back and forth? Well, he creates this scenario where you can see this woman has no way out. Like on one side of her is these guys who are, don't like her, aren't going to help her. You know, they're menacing her. On the other side is Bobby, who's trying to kill her. And on the third yeah. side is the police detective who's just kind of staring at her weirdly. It's clearly not going to help her. Yeah. And the look on his face is actually as disturbing to me as anything in that scene. Because it's like, that guy did a good job because I was like, is he going to arrest her? Is he going to help her? Is he going to... What's this guy? Why is he staring at her with this weird like expression on his face? But yeah, she's like cornered from all sides and you're just sitting there with her in the subway. Like, and the fact that the kid bails her out is like this deus ex machina or whatever. But if the kid wasn't there to bail her out, I mean, she's basically the whole time you're yeah. like, oh, she's done for. Like, this is mm -hmm. not going to get out of this. Well, yeah, because we've already seen it happen to someone else because we're like, well, maybe we have a third. Yeah, there's person a third. Gonna there's gonna be, it's going to be one woman, two women. Actually, bringing it back to the police officer, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I did really like his performance because the way he's looking at her is kind of with a weird side eye. Yeah. And you almost think maybe he sees that yeah, maybe he Bobby's there and he's just like, I don't know what the deal is here because he did mention there was a blonde following and you're thinking that maybe he's just trying to suss out the situation and then he leaves so you realize oh no he never saw there, you can clearly see his eye line that he does kind of see bobby like, that mm -hmm. is weird that like he does he is looking at bobby and yet he's not moving to help her so that is an interesting element of it because like the eye line clearly at one point it's like oh wait he sees that he's standing there yeah the policeman in on it like why are they even just 
thinking about that scene. It's so creepy. It's just so well done. I love that scene. I love the museum scene as well, but the subway scene is probably my favorite only because it just made me sweat so much that I was like, I'm going to vomit, I think. It harnesses kind of all of the elements of living in a city and what are all the like almost nor- like these are normal fears at night living in a city. At yeah. night, you're taking the subway at night. You're in the elevator at night. You know, you're meeting with strange men. Uh, no one's going to hell. Like New York's the type of city where probably no one is. I like how when she's running through the subway, no one even like, there's no way anyone's helping her on that subway. See a woman being chased. They're like, okay, I guess uh, you're di- <laughs> you're fucked. <laughs> Good luck to you. <laughs> but it's so realistically, like that is like the fear of being a woman alone at night running through New York. Like, oh shit. That's like the basis of the film though. It's the fear is that women have deal with on a daily basis realistic they're realistic fears like this isn't made up stuff this is like yeah creepy men on a subway (laughs) yes like bobby set aside that's just one of issue (laughs) to your night on a subway home (laughs) he'll be like okay and now i have someone else trying to murder me (laughs) you did mention the film punishes kate at the beginning that brings me to something the inevitable what De Palma gets accused of a misogynist. <laughs> and this film being misogynist, I don't know how you feel. I'll let you talk about it and then I'll, I'll talk about how I feel. I feel like we're probably on the same wavelength. He is misogynist and there are misogynist elements to it, but you know what? It's fun. I don't care. <laughs> I notice it. And as a woman, it it may be kind of on a subliminal level bothers me. Like, did she really need to get cut up for all that? But it's Mm -hmm. so entertaining and it's realistic. And I forgive the I guess I just if you want to enjoy a movie sometimes by these older guys you just gotta yeah forgive the misogyny and move on because and it's easy to forgive it because the movie is so entertaining like who cares you know like whatever exactly it's i don't know how to say this it's just the one character who's being punished in a way and we have another woman who's a sex worker who's not totally yes she's being followed in her life in the uproar but she comes out kind of the hero come out yeah she comes out at the end of it she's fine i think that yes there clearly are misogynistic elements to it but i don't think that anything he's saying is unrealistic because all these things they might not all happen in the space of 10 minutes to someone (laughs) you know finding out you have multiple (laughs) STDs and being murdered murdered on an elevator yeah (laughs) you know it's heightened reality but those are as we said those are real fears that women had to deal with and he just he's making a movie you know it's a movie yeah but i don't think that he actively hates women that's just my opinion i don't think he's sitting there being like I'm going to punish her for this reason. I want. Listen, it's not irreversible. Like that guy hates women. (laughs) But people don't accuse it. At least I've never read people accuse him of the same thing they they accused De Palma of. Maybe because he's French. So they just decide whatever. (laughs) It goes with the territory, but. (laughs) That's true. You know, there's much worse than De Palma. I mean, I know we always bring it up, but there's Catherine Brea also. She's more misogynist. Probably hates women, too. I think she actually... I think she does hate women, yeah. <laughs> For being a misogynist, enough of his films are centered around women and women's women. experiences in, like, an uh, interesting way, so... Yeah. And he gave Angie Dickinson this role of being sexual and all that stuff, and she's 50, and that was fun. Like, you know, he's not... Yeah, I think it's going really, really searching for something to hate to be focused on any kind of De Palma misogyny, like whatever. I'm glad we agree. (laughs) (laughs) I know we did, but just wanted the the listeners to know. I mean, it's some of his stuff is woman coded, like. Oh, yeah. Like this movie. This movie was I feel like most of his films have Carrie. female leads. Also, the woman playing Lexi, she was in Blowout, also being chased by a killer. That was his wife at the time. Oh, she was his wife. Okay. Yeah. She's good. She's fun. I think she's fun too. She adds like a, a layer of lightness to it, even yeah. though there's. She's like earthy. She's realistic. Mm-hmm. and i can believe her as this and i like her inter- interactions with the detective they're fun together as long as we're having a good time 
Well, I think that brings us to now the reveal. So now we've had Bobby chasing multiple people, namely the two women. There are hints throughout that obviously Michael Caine, Dr. Elliot's involved in some way. It doesn't shy away from that. You just don't know what to extend. Yeah, it's a patient of his. Yeah, exactly. And that he's hiding them. He's protecting them for some sort of reason. Even when he goes to see the doctor, who is the doctor of Bobby. And it's not until the second viewing that you're like, oh, you can, you're looking at the doctor's face and reading his acting and being like, oh, he knows who this is. But on first watch, you just like, he seems suspicious. They successfully did diverted me until the end to not knowing mm-hmm. it was him. Goes to Dr. Elliot's place to seduce him so that she can get to the patient list. And there's a couple of scenes where they flash at him looking at himself in the mirror mm. on his little desk. There's like two specific scenes like that. And you're like, okay, something sinister is going to happen, but you don't know what. You get the switch of it be him being Bobby. I was like, what? <laughs> and you know, I watched it this time with all of that in my mind. And you could see, even from his first scene with Angie Dickinson, the way he's looking at her. Mm-hmm. He's doing, he's good in this movie. Like his performance oh, yeah. is very good. Like uh, you see that sort of ambivalence of him, you know, being this professional, her you know, psychiatrist, but the way he's looking at her is sort of very lechy and uh, Mm -hmm. he plays it well. Like there's a lot of shades to the way he plays that character. It's not a character you often see Michael Caine have played or has played since. Like when I first went to go watch this movie, I was like, Michael Caine is in a De Palma movie. Yeah, that was surprising. That was when I saw him in Hannah and her sisters too. I was like, wait, (laughs) He's a great actor. Some of his early stuff is really interesting that he did. Yeah, he's great in this movie. And then once you get that reveal, you kind of, as the audience, you kind of flash back to being like, oh, these were all the clues of the split personality that De Palma was giving us that you don't latch on to until you get that information. And you see the different split things. And he does it right up until the end of like, I think on this watch, I was like, oh, he's looking at the mirror because he's, I thought at first it was kind of like, he's just looking at himself to be like, okay, and do something bad. I'm going to sleep with this woman. And then he has a smirk on his look to be like, oh, I'm going to switch because it's Bobby taking over at that point. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about the treatment of split personality and the clues of just the trans elements? Because there is a point earlier where they talk about trans. Yeah, there's the on the TV. Yeah. We both watched the same Noah Baumbach interview with De Palma because in that interview, uh, he says that at that time, there was a lot of the news coverage of, I guess at that time it was called transsexuals, but yeah, there was a lot of co- news about it. And he thought it was like a Jekyll and Hyde type, like being born in the wrong body was a Jekyll and Hyde type thing for him. Like that's how he thought about it in, t- in terms of this movie. Mm-hmm. So just looking at it that way, the Jekyll and Hyde thing and using the mirrors to like see that. I mean, he does it in a very clever way. Like it's sort of subtle. It's not too obvious. No. And you really have to pay attention to notice it. So I think, yeah, that's the best way to do it. Not being super, being clever about it. Like the split personality. It builds up. Like I like how it ramps up. It starts sort of very, un- you really don't, you really can't know. You only, I only noticed the way Michael Caine was doing things after the fact of already knowing that he's the guy. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is yeah. kind of indication of where this is going. And it's funny, like after this character gets shot, you just kind of assume the film to end there, but there's still another about 15 minutes where we get the scene of Bobby, Dr. Dr. Elliot. We get a shower. We get two shower scenes in one movie. And that's also silent. It's flashing between her and the shower, realizing, oh, there's someone standing there. You see the nurse's shoes, the white shoes, and it's flashing between, and you see the razor and Liz trying to figure out, uh, how am I going to get out of this? And then or her throat slit, and you're like, uh, I was not expecting another death to happen in this movie. But then she wakes up from the dream. That's fun, though. I just love someone who's having fun with it but is also an extremely capable artist and filmmaker extremely like everything is top-notch the camera the light the production designing this music the score everything is just it's beautiful to look at 
Mm-hmm. The tone is so consistent and so engrossing. So yeah, like you can't say anything about the craft because it's there. It, exactly. It, yeah, you don't get better than that. I always say I'm like because sometimes a certain directors even even say maybe a freaking who in his later career people weren't really talking about as often when he passed away. Everyone being like, oh yeah, I love this and that. I'm like, we don't need to wait for the Palma to pass away to appreciate. Yeah, can we work. appreciate him right now? <laughs> Right? Because I know once, you know, not that I'm bringing it on, but he's getting up there in ages. It's a natural thing. When he does, all of a sudden, everyone's going to be like going back to rewatching and appreciating them. But you could do it right now. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I don't. I don't like that, that we just sort of ignore these amazing artists. They're still with us. (laughs) Appreciate them now. Where's the retrospective now? Let's do it now. Yeah. What are we waiting? Let's not wait for after. Like, let us put on a retrospective. Like, I, we would gladly do it. Yes, please. Let us tell him how much we fucking love him. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about the, like, why I've never identified more with Bombach. It's funny because you wouldn't expect someone like him to be so, so inspired by Bombach, but I, or by De Palma. But I think what I've noticed about people who are huge De Palma fans, they're like secret freaks. <laughs> Yeah. And I think Bombak is a secret freak. Bombak is a secret freak for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I identify with that. You can tell in his movies. He just doesn't, he's sort of a freak in a different direction. In his own filmmaking, he's a different kind of freak from De Palma, but clearly still a freak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think that De Palma does have another one coming out. Oh. Or he's filming, I can't remember what it's called. But I know that he has another one. Oh my god, I can't under the belt. So yes. very excited for that. I had no idea. Um, amazing. Yeah, that was just a kill. I do have those couple other two last questions for you. Hey, I could talk for another hour. <laughs> so. I know I could too. The first question is same as always. The starter film. If you're recommending someone a De Palma film who's never seen his films, would you recommend this one? Yeah, I'd go with Dress to Kill, yeah, for sure. He has just so many great ones that he could start off with, you know, the 70s and the 80s stuff. There's just so much. Dress to Kill very much shows you who he is. I know other people would say, like, eh, Scarface or Carrie or whatever, but I don't know. For me, it's Dress to Kill. It's, I like those other things, but... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I would say Scarface. Like, I definitely, I love that movie. I don't know if I would say that to start. I would say, like, something like A Dress to Kill or Carrie or A Body Double. Body Double. Body Double. You know, this shows you what themes he likes to tackle, who he likes to ogle, and his filmmaking. So that's all you really need to know. And if you don't like it, and it's not for you, then that's fair. And if you do, then you're going to have a great time watching the rest of his stuff everyone has the right to have shitty taste in things <laughs> hey i have shitty taste in men so yeah we all have shitty taste in something. <laughs> again from that interview he said movies mm-hmm. and i think he was quoting a french uh, new wave director whose name i can't remember right now but he said movies about are about you know a girl and a gun you gotta have a girl you gotta have a gun I feel like that's a good dark quote. Yeah, it's a good dark quote, yeah. And now that would be considered misogynist or something, you know. Yeah. But I think it's kind of holds true, you know. You got to have a... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what else do you need? Another question, the last question, it's a double bill. Which one would you pair it with and why? And what's the vibe you're going for when you're pairing them? Uh, I would pair it with Repulsion. Oh, okay. That's a good one. I feel blondes and and in distress. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, that would be the title of the double feature: blondes in distress. That's a good one. I hadn't even thought of that. That's great. Yeah, why not? It, it, repulsion actually stresses me the hell out. That's one of oh, the yeah. movies that actually, genuinely, I was stressed out. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great one. I haven't seen that one in so long, but I should rewatch it. But that's a, that would be a great double bill. I feel like I kind of went with a similar vibe with mine and i picked the naked kiss which is a samuel fuller movie which has a blonde too and there's a lot of tension there and i don't want to ruin the ending for anyone but it's kind of the same vein of what you think this film is going to be does not end up where you know it starts 
it called the last kiss the naked oh, kiss the naked kiss i need to see it i think you would like yeah, it okay i gotta watch I feel like De Palma definitely loves that movie. Oh, okay, I got it. Like, there's no way. It feels like a type of film that he was like, yeah, this is my oh, type of movie. What year was that? Uh, it's 1964, oh, actually. Okay. I got I to I watch it. I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, I think you'll like it a lot. So, yeah, those are our, our devil bills. Recommendations are always good, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. It's one of my few skills. <laughs> Mine, too. That's <laughs> all I know how to do is work. <laughs> well, I I had such a great time having you on. Thanks for helping me open up the Palma Month. I think we hit it off with a banger, and it's just it's gonna be great from here. And I I thank you so much for your insight and for being as enthusiastic about De Palma as I am. Thank you, Felicia. I'm honored to be even thought of alongside De Palma by anybody. So thank you for having me. <laughs> Seeing Faces of Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney. Intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on Blowout. Blowout.